In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we are going to start a new book in the New Testament, the book of Romans, which is one of the um, most important books, uh, which speaks a lot about the, the concept of salvation and how we understand salvation. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult in some areas, but God willing, with the help of different commentaries, we can understand um, what is it that it is saying. So today, God willing, we're going to start with an overview of the book, uh, and then uh, we'll dive into the first chapter. Um, hopefully we can, we can finish. So who is it that the Romans, the book of Romans is written to? The Romans. There you see. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, and so it was a very large metropolitan city. Um, and it was also being kind of a city that's, uh, you know, filled with all kinds of people from different backgrounds. Um, it was also um, a, a very liberal city. There was a lot of immorality um, in the city. Um, and it also had a large contingent of Jewish people there. So even though, of course, Rome is a Gentile region, right? It's not in Israel. Um, so there's obviously many, many Gentiles, but also there was a lot of uh, Jews. Those Jews were actually brought to the city of Rome in the year 63 BC. Um, eventually, these Jews that were kind of brought captive to Rome at that time um, were, were set free, but their numbers continued to grow. And by the time of the writing here that St. Paul is writing to the Romans, um, it's estimated that there was about 16,000 Jews um, in the city of Rome at this time. In 34 AD, okay, so remember that this is like right around the time of um, the resurrection, right afterward, um, all, all the Jews were expelled from Rome under the reign of Claudius Caesar, and this is actually recorded in Acts 18, verse 2, where it mentions that all the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome. Um, but then later on, some of those um, Jews returned again to the city of Rome. One of the ways that we try to understand how the Christian church began in the city of Rome, because uh, unlike some of the other uh, books that we've read in the New Testament, the epistles, where St. Paul travels to a region, establishes churches, and then he leaves, and then later on he writes a letter back to the church, and that's the letter that we are reading. Actually here, St. Paul has not even visited the Romans yet. But he is writing to the Romans that are the Christians that are um, living in the city of Rome. The Catholic Church um, attributes to St. Peter the founding of Christianity in Rome, which is why they consider that St. Peter is like the founder of the Catholic Church. Um, he is the one who founded the Church of Rome. Of course, we know the Catholic Church, its origin is um, in Rome. But from our perspective, there are a lot of reasons to doubt that actually it was St. Peter who was like the first uh, apostle to go and to preach to the Romans. And there's several reasons why. One reason is Christianity was introduced in the city of Rome um, by the people who were visiting uh, I Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So we know on the day of Pentecost what happened. There were, there were people there that after the apostles had received the Holy Spirit that they um, preached St. Peter preached, and it's, uh, it's recorded in the book of Acts that there were people from many, many different nationalities. They were all there and witnessed what is it that had happened and the reception of the Holy Spirit and were baptized there by the apostles on that day. Among them also were people from Egypt, which is also we attribute 
um, kind of the initial preaching, even before St. Mark came to Egypt, the initial kind of exposure to Christianity that the people of Egypt had had to do with those who went to Jerusalem. They experienced um, this, and they came back. They were baptized. They came back to Egypt, and they preached what, what it is that they experienced. The same thing happened with Rome. There were people there from Rome who, who were baptized and went back to Rome and, ex- and described to them what it is that happened. Okay. Um, another reason or another way that Christianity spread in, in Rome was because of these expelled Jewish Christians that I, m- that I mentioned before. So these Jews who were expelled from Rome would have gone out, and then some of them would have come to the faith by one means or the other through the uh, preaching of the apostles. And then when they returned back to Rome, they are now Christians, and now they are able to share their faith again with the local people who are living in Rome. That's the second way that Christianity could have spread in Rome. Again, as I mentioned, there was no church that had yet been established in Rome at the time of the writing of the book of Romans. In Romans 15:20, it said, And I so have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. What does he mean, St. Paul, when he's saying that? I, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. What does that mean? So places he originally evangelized to, okay, but we said he hasn't evangelized to Rome yet. He doesn't want to build on someone else's work. Which uh, is, who is the other person? St. Peter. St. Peter, or anyone, right? Because, yeah, I mean, St. Peter's not in the picture here yet, but he's saying, I'm not going to go and to preach to a group of people that have already been preached to, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting to go somewhere where Christ was named. Christ was named meaning... A group of people that already knows Christ, a group of people that already has churches, a group of people that some other apostle has already come and established churches. St. Paul is saying, I'm not going to go and try to add on top of what they have already done. We know that St. Paul always went to the areas, the Gentile areas, where there was no church, where no apostle had gone yet. Okay, So also in, in Romans 15, St. Paul describes his plans to visit Rome. Okay. So it's very likely and most likely that St. Paul was the very first apostle to go to Rome. Okay. Also, um, St. Paul considered himself to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is, this is why he would go and, and all the areas that he would preach would be the Gentile areas, whereas St. Peter was what? St. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. So it makes much more sense for St. Paul to have been the one to establish the church in Rome rather than St. Peter, because St. Peter's focus was not on the Romans. St. Peter's focus was on the Jewish people, right? And St. Paul's focus was on the Gentiles. And here we are, we have the epistle for from St. Peter, sorry, from St. Paul to the Romans. Also, if St. Peter had already established the Roman church, you know, some people say that the Roman church was established around 41 AD, then St. Paul would have mentioned him in this book. So, you know, at the beginning of every book, you know, St. Saint Paul is like greeting whoever it is that's there in the church that he is writing to. If there were a church, and if St. Peter were indeed the, the apostle of this church, he would have mentioned the name of St. Peter in the greeting at the beginning of the chapter. But he did not do this. Okay, so, so there are many, there's, there's a lot of evidence to indicate that 
St. Peter was not really the one who founded the Church of Rome, and uh, it was actually St. Paul. And this is a big deal, maybe not such a big deal to us, because the question of who is it that founds a, a certain church is not really, it's not that big a deal to us. But for them, the reason that they believe that the Church of Rome has primacy among all the churches and the reason that they believe that the Pope of Rome has primacy over the entire church of the entire world, whether Catholic or not, is because they believe that St. Peter was the founder of the Church of Rome. And they believe that St. Peter was the head of the apostles. So those two beliefs together. They believe St. Peter was the head of the apostles, and they believe that St. Peter was the one who founded the Church of Rome. So therefore, the Catholic Church is the one who has primacy over all of the other churches. And this was something that the Catholic Church, or even before the split happened, even before the Catholic Church became separate from the Orthodox, the Church of Rome, the See of Rome, was always pushing this idea of primacy. And actually, in some of the ecumenical councils, I believe it was the Council of Constantinople, there was canons that were drafted that essentially gives the, the See of Rome primacy um, among all of the other churches. Okay, and, 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 and interestingly, this is a canon that came out of the Council of Constantinople that we rejected as, as the Church of Alexandria. We did not accept this canon. So this is getting into the realm of politics, um, not the realm of, you know, not the realm of theology, okay? The time and place of writing. So, oh, questions. So th this happened, no, so, so this happened this this council of Constantinople. This is when the church was still one, so there was no Eastern or, or, or Oriental or, or Catholic, right? So so yeah, we rejected it. Um, some of the other sees accepted it. I I I I, I want to say everyone, all the other sees accepted it, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And then what happened later is the when Constantinople became also a capital, okay, of the empire, they wanted the the kind of like equal primacy because it was kind of based on the, the the major and important cities right so rome was the capital okay of the west and constantinople was the capital in the east and so when constantinople came to be be prominent the the church uh, in the sea of uh, the sea of constantinople wanted also to have like primacy just like the church of rome kind of having like a uh, kind of a higher rank if you want to say than than the the rest of the seas yes uh, kevin and daniel and sephra First question, um, you you said that St. Paul was uh, preaching to the Gentiles in Rome alone? There were no Jews? You'd mentioned Jews, though. No, and I say St. Paul is the, he is the, uh, he is the apostle to the Gentiles in a general sense. I'm not saying that he's only speaking to the Gentiles that are in Rome, mm -hmm. but St. Paul was the one who was ordained to preach to the rest of the world, right? Yeah. So he was, he considered himself, he actually called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, and that he went to all these different places. So one of these places in, is in Rome, and yes, there are Jews in Rome, and he addresses them as well, right? But he's, his focus is like outside of Israel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, with that said, I, I had a thought when you were speaking about the fact that there were many Jews uh, in Rome. It, it emerged from that, but I, I don't know if it directly applies to Rome, uh, but perhaps other uh, cities. 
in, uh, in, in the church today, we have the situation where uh, most of the Orthodox churches, we are, we are uh, much more e ethnically uh, populated uh, than, uh, than with converts. And, and you know, I, I just wasn't sure to what to make of that for a while. But I was, as I was thinking about it just now, really that was the situation in the first century as well. Uh, where you know we, we what we call the cradle orthodox the Jews were the cradle orthodox and then you have the converts the Gentiles so the spiritual fathers of that time too had to tend to to the to the Jews but also to the ones who are coming in as adults is that with that what do you think so definitely at the at the beginning there was a the church the influx into the church was both from the Jewish origin as well as from the Gentile origin but the number of Gentiles all over the world was a much larger number than just the Jews. And so whenever St. Paul would go or any apostle would go and establish um, a church in some area, that area is predominantly the ethnic culture of those people, right? Like, and uh, the Church of Alexandria was predominantly Egyptians, right? There were some Jews, but it was predominantly Egyptians, okay? Um, so, so from the very beginning, you know, there, there wasn't, every area was, predominantly the group of people from that area it wasn't there was no globalization like we have now where people can travel easily and go from place to place and immigrate so it was predominantly like Egypt is where the Egyptians are and Israel's where the Jews are and and so on that doesn't mean that there weren't some around but but especially as you got further and further away right you would find it's very homogeneous okay the reason that we see nowadays that in the maybe in the Eastern Orthodox Church there is more converts and so on one of the reasons is is that they started the process of kind of going out and evangelizing and immigrating earlier than most of the Oriental Orthodox. So like in the 1800s, for instance, is when the first of the Eastern Orthodox came to North America and they began to establish churches here and then began the process of evangelism and people joining the church and so on. Whereas for, for at least for the Coptic Orthodox Church, that's something that's only started maybe in the last 50 years as opposed to the last 150 years or so for the Eastern Orthodox. Mm -hmm. uh, just a uh, quick question. Um, you, the, the Jews, though, the, the apostles initially went it went to the Jews in each of these uh, places, right? That's where the churches were initially established. Would you say that? Uh, that's what I assumed, anyways. Y you don't know the, the churches that St. Paul established? No, not... I guess all the apostles. They uh, I had heard that they would go to the... Uh, they would go to the uh, diaspora, the, the the different regions where the Jews were, and from there this, uh, the churches would emerge. So uh, their focus, so St. Paul, for instance, his focus was not to go and preach to the Jews. When he went into a place and found Jews, this would be the first place he would go. So for instance, it would say, in, in the when you read in the book of Acts about St. Paul's missionary journeys, it'd say like when he would go to a certain area, the first thing he would do is go to the synagogue because there would be a synagogue there for the Jewish people who were there. And he would preach, okay? Some people accepted, some people rejected. But the, 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 his, his, his main focus was not just, I'm going to go to places where there are Jews that are living in the diaspora, because this is a very small number compared to the number that are actually in Israel. He, he his main focus was to just preach to the Gentiles. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, question. Oh, sorry. It's two questions. Uh, so for the concept of uh, not uh, building on the uh, another apostle's uh, evangelism in that area, uh, 
the the Latins and the Protestants, for example, would go into or have gone or continue to go into Orthodox uh, communities and nations. Does the same apply to us? I'm sure that I probably asked this during the evangelism workshop as well, kind of with the idea of do we prioritize evangelizing to Protestants over like Hindus and other groups? So keep in mind that at the time there were no denominations of Christianity, right? So if there was a group that was already evangelized to and there was already a church there, it was an authentic Christian community of the same faith that St. Paul is preaching. So essentially for him to go to to an area like that would be kind of like there was no purpose. Like they already they already had been preached to, there was already a church established, there was another apostle already responsible for them. So there wasn't a kind of an urgent need for him to do anything, right? This is a different question than if we talk about like, okay, like evangelizing to someone who is has a different faith. So for instance, even among Protestants, for instance, let's say you have a person who is a Christian as a Protestant, but they don't believe in the sacraments. But we believe that the sacraments are necessary for salvation. So when we go and we speak about the sacraments to someone who is a Protestant, we are adding something to them. It's not just uh, kind of like, well, we are just taking the role of somebody else. No, we are adding something new that you didn't know that you need to be aware of, right? So that's 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 a little different. You see what I mean? And with regards to the, the primacy that the, the Roman patriarch was trying to attain, is that is that where the first among equals that is that the title that yeah that the first among equals so they he doesn't consider himself to be a higher rank in the sense that he's he's like like all the paid all of the, the the bishops are the same they're like all the apostles are the same but he is like the leader you know even in our church for instance our 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 pope is considered the first among equals of all the bishops our pope is a bishop Ecclesiastically, he has the same gift of priesthood as any bishop. There isn't anything that he can do ecclesiastically, like sacramentally, like through the working of the Holy Spirit that the other bishops cannot do, right? So, so for instance, the pope can ordain, the bishop can ordain, right? The, the, the bishop has the gift of the laying of hands, the pope also has the gift of the laying of hands. So from a, from a priesthood perspective, they have the same gifts, but from an administrative perspective, from a leadership perspective, the, the Pope is like the first. He's the one representing the church, right? Like if there's going to be some, some meeting between like uh, uh, our church and another church, then the Pope would be the one to go or he would appoint someone to go in his place. But he is the leader of the church from an administrative perspective. Okay. Yes. Um, so... Peter, uh, being the head of the apostles comes from the whole like you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church we don't interpret slash translate that the same way the Catholic Church did right yes so the the conversation that Christ had with St. Peter it's like who do you say and 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 yeah and and and, and, um, uh, and he asked them who do you say that I am uh, and and then um, St. Peter essentially proclaimed the faith that he is the son of God and then Christ said on this rock I will build my church and so the 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 Catholic Church interprets that the word rock is referring to Peter himself because the name Peter or Petros means rock okay but what was actually what he was actually saying is the rock that the church is built on is the faith that was proclaimed by St. Peter namely that he is the son of God so St. Peter was like the first one 
like to to declare openly that his belief that Jesus is God is the son of God and so Christ said this belief that that Jesus is the son of God is the foundation of the church's faith right not saying that St. Peter is the rock on which the church is built. Like, what does that even mean? Like, how would you have a person as a foundation for the church? Like, that doesn't, like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, Christ is the foundation of the church, right? And from our perspective, like from the human involvement, our faith that Christ is the Son of God is the foundation of the church and what we believe, like what the church does. So to say that any one human being is the the foundation of the church, it, like it's not so, you know. Similarly, and again, like you can't take things in a literal sense like that. In that same chapter, right after that, when Christ revealed to the apostles that he was going to be crucified, okay, Saint Peter, out of his zeal and love for Christ, he says, "No, I will not allow you to be crucified." So Christ responded to him and said, "Get behind me, Satan." So again, we don't take that literally to mean that. Christ was actually referring that St. Peter is Satan and that we should treat St. Peter as though he is Satan either, right? So we have to understand the context of like what, what's happening, okay? Okay, so the time and place of the writing of the book of Romans. So Romans was written during St. Paul's third missionary journey to Corinth and it was written in the house that belonged to a man named Gaius. Okay, St. Paul describes Gaius as his host and the host of the whole church. He mentions him in Romans 16. Uh, and Gaius is uh, the one whom the apostle St. Paul had baptized. So um, so St. Paul is actually the one who baptized Gaius. And the epistle, and also this person's name is mentioned, the epistle was dictated. Remember we had spoken about last time about how St. Paul had a problem with his vision. And that he would dictate um, his, his, uh, his epistles to someone who would write it for him, right? So the one who is actually writing with his hand the epistle, her name is Tertius. His name is Tertius. His name is also mentioned. Um, uh, and then after the epistle was written, it was carried to Rome by a deaconess whose name is Phoebe. She's the one who carried it, actually, the, the, the manuscript itself. She's the one who carried it to Rome. St. Paul had gone to Jerusalem in the spring of 58 AD, and therefore most scholars consider that the epistle was written between 57 and 58 AD uh, as the approximate time of the writing of this um, epistle. Yes. No one asked it yet, but someone like uh, would ask about the deaconess Phoebe. Like. Yeah. So the rank of deaconess is a rank in the church. It's not. Um, it's not used very much nowadays. Although there are some who are deaconesses. But the, the role of deaconess is completely different than the role of deacon, right? So people, when they think of the role of deacon, they, they think of le an ecclesiastical role, like a role in the liturgy, right, as a deacon, as someone who is doing uh, some work. The word deacon just means servant. That's what the word deacon means. And, you know, even the ranks of the deacons that we have nowadays, um, like the, wo the ones who chant and the ones who read, those are like ranks that were added kind of later on. The original rank of deacon is essentially the archdeacon, the consecrated deacon, okay? Um, the deaconess, her role was more in like serving the poor, um, serving the women, doing some kind of social service. This was the, the role primarily of the deaconess. So she wasn't like 
someone who participated in an in, in, in ecclesiastical service, like in the church, like when people speak about why can't we have girls to be deacons, it's not the same type of service, okay? It's not the same type of service. The importance and the purpose of the epistle. So what is the, the, the setting, okay? So like I said, there were many Jewish and Gentile Romans that had converted to Christianity. Um, also, Rome had many educated pagans who are Greek scholars. Whenever we speak about kind of some of these Gentile areas, um, they, they, they tended to be very educated. There was, uh, they spoke Greek. Um, they, were, they were philosophers and so on. So they had a lot of different types of people living in the city. Um, some of the Jewish converts believed that they were superior to the Gentile converts because they came from Jewish origin. This goes back to what we were talking about in the book of Galatians, where there were groups, the Judaizers, who had in their mind that because they came from Jewish origin and because they clung to the Jewish practices like circumcision, they were actually superior to and better than the Gentiles, which is why they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to become Christian as opposed to you know, abandoning those Jewish practices. They considered that those Jewish traditions, the law of Moses, was kind of something that set them apart from the other people. And so anyone who comes from a Jewish background to Christianity is like superior to the Gentiles. So this conflict between the two groups was something that was happening as well in Rome. Again, the Jews, they believe that because they're the children of Abraham, the recipients of the law, God's chosen people, this is why they were superior. And they wanted kind of to, to, to lord that over the Gentiles. At the same time, the Gentiles thought that they were superior. And the reason is, is because the Jewish nation rejected Christ, right? Rejected the Messiah, crucified him, and subsequently were rejected by God. So from the Gentile perspective, they see it the opposite. They see it that, no, actually, the, the Jews were rejected by God, right? So the Gentiles actually have maybe more favor in the sight of God, the Gentiles who are coming to Christianity, because we did not crucify the Messiah. You crucified the Messiah. Okay, so maybe this is a mentality that they have. Um, so both groups kind of suffered from a sense of pride and a sense of animosity toward each other. And the epistle was directed at both groups. So we see sometimes St. Paul is speaking generally. Sometimes he's speaking specifically to the Jews. Sometimes he's speaking specifically to the Gentiles. The epistle addresses the practical implications of faith and the spiritual behavior and in daily life. And St. Paul focuses on this message of salvation and its availability to all people through living faith. He also deals with issues of pride in the community. So it's a very practical book to talking about, you know, day-to-day -day life and, um, and faith. Some of the major themes is faith, uh, the free gift of salvation, universality of salvation, meaning salvation is available to everyone, the concepts of grace, justification, and sanctification, which we'll discuss, um, and also free will and choice. Um, this, is, this is other themes that will come up also in this book. Okay, any questions about kind of the book before we start? Yes. Here's a question from Facebook. Um, didn't St. Paul believe a few years after Ascension? How can he be the first one to establish Christianity in Rome? Didn't he what? A few years after Ascension? He leave? Yeah. No? Believe? Mm -hmm. um, well, because, because there was no apostle that went to Rome. Actually, who was the apostle that established all of the churches that we read about like in the book of Acts. You read about St. Paul is the one who went to Corinth and St. Paul is the one who went, you know, to, 
to Antioch and St. Paul went to all these places, right? No other apostle had gone there yet, right? So the majority of the apostles were focusing more on the more local preaching and evangelizing, and St. Paul was focusing more on the global, right? By local, we mean Israel, like... Israel, Judea, Samaria, right? That region. And whereas St. Whereas Paul was focusing more on going out, okay? Um, and this is actually why, like, from a ritualistic perspective. So, you know, in the liturgy, in the liturgy of the word, when we read the Pauline epistle, right, the priest is going around the church sensing, right, during the time right before the reading of the Pauline epistle. The priest also goes out in the congregation and senses during the time of the reading of the Acts, okay? But when it's the time for the reading of the Pauline epistle, the priest goes throughout the entire church, whereas when it's the reading of the Acts, if you notice, I just go in the front, and that's it, okay? And that's symbolic of this difference between St. Paul and the others. We're not trying to say St. Paul is better than the others. What we're saying is St. Paul went throughout the whole world. So the, 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 the sensing around the entire church all the way from the front to the back symbolizes the fact that St. Paul preached to the entire world, whereas during the book of Acts, the, the sensing in the front represents the fact that the apostles went and preached, but they didn't go as far as the preaching of St. Paul. And also another interesting thing is if you notice that uh, during the, the, the procession of the Acts, when the priest goes back into the altar, instead of just going in like he does with St. Paul, uh, the, with the Pauline procession, he will stand at the door of the altar, sensing, saying a silent prayer, and then he will go in. And this stopping at the door of the sanctuary represents the fact that all of the apostles th um, uh, that went and preached in different places, they ended up being martyred before ever coming back to Jerusalem again. So it's kind of like they stopped before they came back. Like they didn't come back, right? They, 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 they were martyred as a part of their service. So yes, definitely um, the, each of the apostles was kind of consecrated for a certain ministry in a certain area. And St. Paul went to the most places, which is why in all these places that we mention, all the places that are mentioned in the book of Acts, St. Paul was the first one to go. Keep in mind that even in the book of Acts, St. Paul did not start going and preaching immediately, right? He spent a good amount of time learning and, and after his conversion. He didn't, like, get converted and then immediately start to go preach. So it was, you know, a, a long period of time, maybe like 14 years or so or something around that time frame before he would go out and start doing and establishing churches in these places. Okay. Chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. St. Paul is, uh, as we mentioned, in all of the uh, Pauline epistles, except for the book of Hebrews, the very first word of the epistle is Paul. He, he always introduces himself as the one who is writing. It's always the very first word. Um, and he is kind of giving himself certain designations. He's saying about himself that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's saying he's called to be an apostle, and he's saying he's separated to the gospel of God. By saying he is a bondservant of Christ, right, he's placing himself alongside all of the others who came before him. He's making like a connection between his ministry and all of the other servants. Who are the other servants? Like all the people that came through the Old Testament, the kings and the prophets and the priests and um, all those who have the authors of Scripture, all the people that um, the people knew from uh, the beginning of the servants of God. He is saying, I am one of them. I have been sent by God just like all of the other servants have been sent by God. 
Also, he's saying called to be an apostle. So he's emphasizing that he was called because he was originally a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was completely against the message of Christianity. But because God called him to the faith, he believed. And now he is doing this work as an apostle. So he's like sharing his, the idea that he was called for apostleship just as he is now calling the Gentiles. By writing this epistle, he is calling the Gentiles to have faith. He's calling them to be established in faith and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a calling. Saying, just as I was called and I accepted the call, so also you are being called to the faith and you should accept the faith that you are called for. So the, perf the emphasis here is on like God's will and his purpose being manifested um, in their lives. Finally, he says that he is separated to the gospel of God. This means he is consecrated to the gospel message, right? Like his entire life is focused completely on the gospel. His whole life is revolving around the ministry. His whole purpose is around the idea of service, preaching, sacrificing himself for the sake of this message, for the sake of the salvation of, of everyone, both the Jew and the Gentile. He is consecrated to this. He is not living a normal life. He is not living a life like anyone else. But he is, he is com committed 100% to this ministry. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So the gospel message he's bringing to light here, the, 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 the gospel message is not a new message. It's not a message that came kind of out of nowhere. It is not something that contradicts what came before. But it began in the Old Testament and continued and has been fulfilled and revealed in its fullness in the New Testament. So the gospel began in the Old Testament. God's work of salvation actually begins, when, do we, when is the first time we even read about the God's work of salvation in the Bible? Where in the story of Adam and Eve? Okay, he gave them the skin of the animals, and, and what does that represent? The sacrifice, making a sacrifice, okay. There's something more explicit than that. The question is, when is the very first time in the scripture do we read about the plan of salvation? Uh, when he was rebuking Satan, Adam, and Eve for their sins. We, uh, he was said, like, um, he will bruise, I don't remember what's the word. Like the seed of the woman yes. will bruise the head of the serpent, right? Which means what? Is that what you were going to say, Kevin? Yes, okay. Um, which means what? Who is the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is the Messiah, the one who will be born of the woman, okay? Who is Christ. And that he is going to, uh, uh, like, stomp on the head of uh, the serpent, who is, who is the devil. So he's going to have victory over Satan, okay? This uh, prophecy or this, this statement that, that God made was immediately after the fall while they were still in the Garden of Eden getting ready to be expelled, okay? So, so, so this plan of salvation that God had put into motion was not something that happened later on in history. It was something that God had in his mind from the very, very beginning, and he revealed it from the very beginning, that there will be a person who is going to be born who is going to crush Satan, okay? And then that, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, this Messiah was prophesied about in the prophets and, uh, and, and in the incarnation it was realized in the person of Jesus Christ. So in the ultimate salvation that we read about that hasn't complete com been completed yet is the salvation that we see revealed in the book of Revelation. 
break in the book of Revelation when we speak about the end times and the second coming and the general resurrection, the, the, the fullness and the completion of all of the work of God of salvation. This is, he's connecting all of this together. Okay, this is the, the gospel message which he promised before through his prophets and in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so Jesus Christ was born as a descendant of King David. This was a prophecy and has been fulfilled. And uh, the Son of God has a power and his identity was confirmed when he rose from the dead. So how do we know that he is truly the one who was prophesied to come? Because he fulfilled the prophecy of the resurrection. That he, he rose from the dead. He, his, his body physically rose from the dead. And so he is the author of salvation. And he is the one who was the fulfillment of the prophecies that was spoken of him. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Christ is the one who, who, was, who called St. Paul for apostleship. Right? Through Christ, we have received the grace of God and apostleship to become an apostle. St. Paul saying, we, all of the us as the apostles, have received grace and a calling for apostleship to live a life of obedience and a life of faith among all the nations. Right? So we are an example. We are, we are an example to the world as to how to live in a godly way, how to live a life of faith how we should live and what we should do and he spent and consecrated his life for the message of the gospel because he was called for this apostleship among whom you also are called of jesus christ so again he's making this parallel between i was called for apostleship but you are also called right maybe not for the apostleship as i was and that in the, with that exact rank and that exact mission but you are called to be a believer. You are called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are called to be the children of God. And so, just as I was called, I'm also sharing this calling with you so that you know that you also um, were called. And he's, he's bringing this message of salvation to them specifically, like to the Romans. He's coming to the Romans and he's saying, this calling um, is for you, and Christ died for you. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says about them that they are the beloved of God, the ones who are in Rome. God cares about them. God loves them. God knows them. God wants them to have salvation. And they are called to be saints. Called to be saints. Okay, what is the word saint here in this context? They are called to be holy. They're called to be to be righteous. They're called for salvation. They are called to be the children of God. This sainthood, which is the general sainthood, where we speak about like we are all, this we are all the saints. Like when Saint Paul refers to us all as saints, um, saying we are all called for a life of holiness. We're all called for a life uh, like a saintly life to live a life according to the will of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So before speaking about any of his concerns as we often see St. Paul doing, um, he begins to speak about positive things. Okay, So before he started to speak about some of the negative things, he says what? Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Remember that at this point, St. Paul has not gone and visited them yet. And there had been no other apostle who had established churches there yet. 
it was kind of an organic movement of people who had kind of believed in Christianity and on the ways that we had discussed before, and kind of Christianity was flourishing in the city of Rome, uh, both among Jews and Gentiles, and St. Paul is writing to encourage them and, and to say, I want to come to visit you, okay? But also he is addressing some concerns that he has. So saying, your faith is spoken of through a whole world. Like, you're, you, you have, like, everybody knows, like, the faith that you have in the city of Rome and all the Roman people and the Roman church, and that, that it, is, it is something that is well known. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Okay? Like, I serve you with my spirit, right? And I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, right? When he says what I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, and I'm always praying for you, I'm always making requests for you, and I'm trying and I want, according to the will of God, to find a way to come and to serve you and to visit you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. Like he's expressing his desire to go and see them, not because he will gain anything from them, or there's anything that he wants to have from them, but because he wants to give them something. He wants them to, 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 to have some spiritual gift. He wants to give them of his wisdom. He wants to give them of, of, of his knowledge and his understanding of telling them how is it that they should be living, what is it they should be looking out for, helping to establish them and, and the church in Rome, and so on. He wants to serve them, not to receive anything for his efforts. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So when I would see you in person, I would be encouraged, and I would see your faith in person, and, and the strengthening of the church, and hear your good news, and teach you the, tr the truth, and all this. And this would bring both joy and encouragement, both to you and to me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Okay? This fruit that he's speaking about is the result of his ministry. Right? So it's like the fruit of the ministry. You know, St. Paul, he traveled around the world, in a sense, planting. Right? He is planting churches. He is planting the seeds of faith. He is going and talking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and all these places. And so he is planting, and he wants to see that there is a fruit. The fruit is the fruit of faith that comes from his service, that comes from all this planting, all this preaching, all this teaching, all this rebuking, all this encouraging, all this that he is doing and all of these places in the world. He wants to see the fruit of it. He wants to see that they are becoming mature in their Christianity, that they are showing genuine love for one another, that they are forgiving one another, that they have, you know, that they, 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 they care about the truth and they are not willing to accept false prophecies, that they are treating one another in the right way. All these are the fruit that St. Paul is, is looking for, right? So he's saying, I want to come to you. I want to offer you, you know, uh, uh, you know what my service, and I want to see fruit, okay, among you. Um, also, you know, he, he wants to see it with his own eyes. You know, like he said at the beginning, um, like you have a reputation, like everyone has heard about your faith, but he wants to go and to see it for, for himself. St. John Chrysostom, he says this. He says, What a noble soul! The apostle took responsibility to undertake this task, 
which involved great dangers. He traveled by sea, where he faced many obstacles and plots. And though he expected all these immense difficulties, yet his resolve was not diminished. Indeed, he was the more determined to rush and struggle and mentally prepared to endure whatever came his way. So again, referring to his desire to give of himself for the sake of the Roman church. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Okay, so when he says, I am a debtor, okay, what, is it, what does he mean when he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians? It means he has a debt to pay, and that debt is like an obligation. Like he feels like he has a responsibility and a duty and an obligation that he must pay, right? This is the way he is seeing himself. Like he's seeing that I, I have been commissioned and called as an apostle, and so I have a debt to you, which is my calling, which is my mission, which is what I'm obligated to teach and to serve and to give of myself. I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, to both wise and unwise, meaning I have this responsibility to preach the truth to all people, regardless of who they are, and I am writing to you because I am, I, I feel this burden of responsibility that I must teach you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Okay, so again, he wants to proclaim this message, this good news message, and he is not ashamed, he is not afraid of persecution, he is not afraid of embarrassment, he is not afraid of being scandalized or what anyone will do to him or whatever anyone will say to him. It is a message of salvation First for the Jew. Why does he say first for the Jew and then also for the Greek? What is what is he referring to? The church was then open for all the Gentiles. Yes, so first is as in not that the Jews have like a better rank than the Greeks, but first in time, like first chronologically, right? And this is what St. John Chrysostom says. He says the word first is just a reference to time. There can be no qualification for righteousness, for it is like someone who is the first to go into the baptismal font, and then the second one follows. Does the first receive more blessings? No they would both enjoy the same grace. In the same manner, the Jew and the Greek receive equal gifts of grace once they acknowledge and embrace the gospel. So the plan of God was to bring the salvation first for the Jew, and through that would then spread to the rest of the world, and so all, all the world would believe. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, some scholars like Tertullian and Origen, they consider that these words are conveying that the righteousness of God becomes evident in those who have faith, right? So it is like the, the, those people who believe, who are filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit, manifested in them is the righteousness of God. Right, that God is, is changing us, he's transforming us through the mystery of the baptism, through communion, through confession, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that when we have faith in God, then the, the, the righteousness of God is manifested in us. Okay, So it is reflected in the believers who are moving to accept faith in the gospel. 
And the fruit which St. Paul is talking about that he wants the whole world to receive is this, is this, is that he wants the righteousness of God to be manifested. He wants the righteousness of God to be manifested in all people. And this is the fruit of the gospel. This is the fruit of his, of his work, of his ministry, is to see this faith and to see this righteousness manifested to everyone. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Okay, so just as the righteousness of God is revealed in the believer through the grace of God working in them, so also the unrighteousness is revealed in the unbeliever. The person who is apart from God, that does not have the benefit of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, who lives in darkness, what is the manifestation of this darkness? What is the manifestation of their unbelief? It is uh, wickedness. Okay, And this wrath of God is revealed in them. The unbeliever suppresses the truth and that they refuse to accept the truth Okay, when instead they choose to live in darkness and sin pleasing the senses. Okay, It says, what, what, uh, because what may be known of God is manifest to them. So what is he saying? He's saying there are the people who even though when they look around them, they see the evidence of God, okay, and yet they do not assent to it, they do not accept it, they do not uh, live it, and so they continue to reject it, and thus the wrath of God is manifested on them. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So this is to say what? That there is evidence in the universe. There's evidence in the world for the existence of God. There's evidence. And the person who uh, acknowledges that this evidence exists, that we can see the, the evidence of God in nature around us, so we see the, 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 the existence of God and the evidence of God in ourselves, and we, we begin to walk toward this in accepting this and trying to discover the truth, this is the person who will eventually be led to um, God and receive the righteousness of God. Whereas the person who sees the evidence of God but rejects it and walks contrary to it, because they want to worship their own desires and lusts and they don't want to submit their will to the will of God, this is a person who, living in darkness, that the wrath of God will be revealed on them. So God manifests himself, but it's up to the person to decide whether they choose to walk toward God or away from God. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So th God created the world in such a way that his invisible attributes are evident. His invisible attributes are evident. So for instance, when you see how a human cell works and the complexity of it, and all the members of the cell, and how each one has its own function, and how they work together, and how the cell multiplies, and how the body grows, and how DNA works, and all these things that maybe only in the last, you know, recent years that humanity has been able to, to observe, really, and to, to, to get a sense of how it really works. These things should, should bring someone to the realization that such a complex system as that 
whether you are looking as complexity in nature and a large scale or complexity in a small scale or even in our own minds, you know, or in the human being, or in every way that God is revealing himself, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That the more we think about it, if we are honest, if we are honest and we look at the creation, God designed the creation such that if you look at it and you examine it, you will find him in it. You will see God in the creation. God made it so. So this is why no one is with any excuse to say, well, I, I never heard of God or I never saw God or no one preached to me about God. The creation itself is the gospel. Right? The creation itself is a message that is saying there is something. There is something beyond the physical. There is something beyond the material and saying what? Even his eternal power and God's head so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. No one can come and say, I had no idea. No one can come and say, I didn't have any indication, right? Because God, God designed everything, the creation, in a way that his invisible attributes would be seen. Now, maybe those invisible attributes, having seen them, they're not going to necessarily tell you every detail and every information about the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation and all that stuff. But it's enough to lead you to that path to when then you can begin to explore it. And the church is available. Like The church is, exists in the world. That someone who begins to question and say, well, what is, what is it that I'm seeing? What is it that I'm seeing in the world, right? To come and to begin to ask questions and then to, to find answers to those things. So this is what St. Paul is saying. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So even though they see the, the, the evidence of the existence of God, but they did not glorify him as God. You know, like when we when we see all of this evidence, but we we don't we don't attribute it to God, and we actually try to find a very humanistic uh, way of describing the things that we see, so as to avoid the reality of the existence of God, because it is too makes us too uncomfortable. You know, when you when you, when you really think about it. Okay, you know, we believe that all that we see in the universe is the creation of God, and it's ultra complex, super complex, more than any human being could design it, even though we have minds, right? More than, more than any human being could conceive of, okay? But they attribute it to randomness. Like, th they attribute it to no mind whatsoever. And they try to convince everyone that no mind whatsoever could create something more complex than the most intelligent mind that we know of, we know of that exists in the universe, which is us. So, so even a mind as advanced as us could not create the complexity and the design that we see, but what does create it is nothing. Nothing is what creates it. Almost saying that nothingness is more advanced than us. So, and, and they push this so often, it's like one of those things where you, once you hear something enough times, it just stops sounding ludicrous. It's ludicrous. There's no, there's no, there's, there's not even a sense, like there's not even a small percentage possibility that this is true. Because it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's completely contrary to, to sense. It's completely contrary to reason. How you can have the most complex thing created by, by nothingness, right? when it is evident all of the design that we see around us cannot be denied cannot be denied 
professing to be wise, they became fools. This is exactly what it's saying. They are the ones saying that they are the most wise, that they have the most understanding, that they are the most scientific, that they are the, the ones who can answer this question and can tell all the rest of us how it really is. But they are the ones who are the fools, where they ignore the, the clear evidence right in front of their eyes and they say, no, there is no God. There is no God because we can explain it with randomness over billions of years. Randomness and billions of years. This is the answer. This is the answer to explain everything that exists, right? It has, it, there's no sense in that. There's just, there's no reason in that at all, okay? And, and well, to go back to this, the, the sad thing is that people, because they see these wise people, the people who are wise according to the world, who have great knowledge and understanding about certain concepts, are intimidated by them and just conclude, well, then whatever they say must be true. Like, you know, like if, if I listen to someone who is like maybe an expert in genetics, I don't know what they're saying because it's too complicated for me to understand all these things about the genetics. But I can tell that there is something. Like people, when they can't explain something, then they are just going to... Like use whatever complexity and, and complex words and, and notions and things like that to try to pretend that they have an understanding and wisdom. There is a difference between wisdom and knowledge, right? Like these, these people might have crazy amounts of knowledge, but how do you take that knowledge and then come to a, the right conclusion, right? That's wisdom. How do I use the knowledge that I have to make a right choice? How do I use the knowledge that I have to come to a right understanding? That is wisdom, right? So here it's saying is they are professing to have wisdom. They don't have wisdom. They have knowledge. They can understand maybe more than anyone else the details of the creation itself. Like the details of the creation, they understand the things that God has created, maybe better than anyone. They understand how the things God created works. But despite this, they miss the, the kind of like where everything is pointing to is that it is a created by God. It is not just a, a random process. Yes. Hi, something that I read from On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius that appealed to me about this. He, he was speaking to the atheists of his time and he spoke about how if the world was, as they say, it comes from randomness then the world would be, everything would be meaningless. We live as if there is meaning, right? These very atheists who speak about this, this world that's formed from randomness, they live contrarily. They live as if this world has meaning. But if the world was as they said it was, then nothing has any meaning. We, we would be living in this nihilistic reality, which no one lives like that. It, life would be meaningless. Very good. There's actually, there's a very famous atheist whose name is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins tries to push this idea that meaning doesn't exist and that free will doesn't exist. Because according to this purely atheistic perspective, the only reason that we do and say and think the things that we do, it's a product of chemistry and physics. There is no actual consciousness. There is no actual will. It's just all of my atoms and molecules that react together according to physics, that are determining the words that I'm saying right now. So there is no actual personhood, there is no purpose, there is no, it's just randomness. This is what they want to say. But 
from the experience of just any normal person. You know, this is, again, the people who are claiming to have such wisdom but are missing the most basic thing that we all realize and understand is that there there is a desire for meaning. There is a desire to know the truth. There is a sense of self. There is free will. So then there came, like, another generation of atheists that are trying to reconcile that, yes, we can have free will, but at the same time things are only materialistic or... And there's there's all kinds of different theories. But, like, you're completely right. You know, this idea of pure atheism, materialism, right, go is contrary to our everyday human experience, right, in the sense that we do feel like there is there is a purpose and we want to know what the purpose is and we want to feel like we are fulfilling that purpose, right? That's something built into us, which, again, goes back to the invisible attributes of God in the creation, that he placed in us a desire for purpose, right, which cannot be simply ignored and reduced to atoms you know there is there is a sense that a desire for purpose and th this part this is something given to us because we are made in the image of god so if we explore this th this is when we begin to find reasons why for god's existence just in the, the the simple observations that we see on a regular basis um which to some is is you know is lost on them and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Meaning, they took this concept of this glorious, infinite, powerful creator God and they reduced him to be in the image of the corruptible, of the physical, of the earthly. So specifically, you know, you could speak about the idol worshippers for instance the idol worshippers they said who is god well god is this wooden statue right they took the 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 image of and the glory of this incorruptible god and made it to be an image of corruptible man birds four-footed animals whatever it is that they would worship and they would say that this is a god this is like a reducing god to this we can also say you know in our time this is what we're doing what is it that we are worshiping now? It's really the human being. We are, we are saying that we are taking the place of God ourselves. Science is taking the place of God. You know, psychology is taking the place of God. Like we say, you know what? Well, demon possession doesn't really exist. It's just a, a psychological disorders, right? Um, anything that we have traditionally understood as and attributed it to God, now people try to find a human understanding of it in a way that we can understand, in a way that makes sense without the existence of God, right? So, so this is taking the glory of the incorruptible God and making it into the image of man, into something that fits within our little sphere of understanding, which is the material world and only the material world. So whether the idol worshippers, they did it by making statues or whether it's a scientific community making it by explaining away everything and, and trying to make physical processes that explain everything, it's the same concept. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Paul's first charge against the heathen was that they failed to find God. His second was that although they had great and clear means of doing it, they did not. The third is that they nevertheless claimed to be wise. The fourth was that not only did they not find the supreme being, they lowered him to the low level of devils, stones, and wood. So those are like the four arguments he's given so far. The first charge against them was they couldn't find God. They didn't see him. Even though there was evidence of him everywhere, 
They didn't see him or they didn't want to see him. The second was that they had a clear means of seeing him, but they did not. The third is they still claim to have wisdom, even though they were fools. And the fourth is um, not only did they not find him, but they, they, they brought him down to the level of, 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 of the corrupted world and, and uh, trying to explain everything through the corrupted world instead of the exalted God. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the consequence of all that came before. That people, although seeing the clear evidence of God, rejected God and choosing to live in darkness and choosing to live apart from God, what is the consequence? What is going to happen? God, who is necessary for us as human beings to live, to function, to, to live joyfully, to live with a sense of purpose, of understanding, of reason and rationality, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart, to dishonor their bodies, essentially to become what? To become animals, right? Like the grace of God left the people so that they would devolve essentially into the state of just being animals. That the, the higher mind, the higher reason, the higher sense, and all the faculties that God gave to humanity to separate us from, from the, the, the creature, okay, is kind of taken away. You see maybe, for instance, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar the king, when, when, when God chose to punish him, he became an animal, and he began to walk on on his hands and feet like an animal and his nails grew out and like he became he became an animal it was it was the physical representation of what was happening in his mind and this is where our society is sadly sadly very sadly our society is in a place where they have completely rejected God and so God has left them right he's given them up to their uncleanness to whatever passions that they want to do to whatever things to the lust of their heart to whatever perversions it is that their hearts desire that then are labeled to be good and right and virtuous. A complete perversion of morality, a complete perversion of desire that, that, that kind of our society is heading toward. It is self-destructive. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. This is the homosexuality. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So this is, he's using this as an example of what happens when the grace of God leaves us. That the, the natural way that God has made us to function breaks down because we cannot live without being supported by the grace of God. So when, when we, we reject God, we, we again, we turn into these animalistic, you know, creatures. Ambrosiaster, he says, Paul tells us that these things came about that a woman should lust after another woman because God was angry at the human race because of its idolatry. Those who interpret this differently do not understand the force of the argument. For what is it to change the use of nature into a use which is contrary to nature, if not to take away the former and ado adopt the latter? so that the same part of the body should be used by each of the sexes in a way for which it was not intended. Therefore, if this is the part of the body which they think it is, how could they have changed the natural use of it if they had not had this use given to them by nature? 
This is why he said earlier that they had been handed over to uncleanness, even though he did not explain in detail what he meant. So again, homosexuality is an example of one of these vile passions. It is a perversion to the natural way that God intended for men and women to live and to function. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You know, even, even the, the breakdown of the concept of truth in our society is a result of this. The idea that truth doesn't exist anymore. There is no concept of truth. Truth is whatever will, will get you what you want. That is truth. There is no concept of truth in the media or truth in the news. You, you, you watch the news and you don't feel like you're any closer to knowing the truth because everyone says simply what they want you to believe. So the, and, and, and there's no shame of it. You know, there was a time when someone would lie and they would feel ashamed of that. Or when they would be found out, they would apologize for it. But that is not the world we live in. We live in a world where there is no shame in lying, and even when you're caught lying, you just justify it by some means or the other, or to the point of even redefining the definition of words to justify what is it that you said. So those who did not want to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them to this debased mind, right? To, to, a, to a defiled and corrupted mind that, that, that no longer shares any attributes of God. Like, you know, as being created in the image of God, we share the attributes of God and not 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 fully. Right. Like we are we are we are not the perfection of the attributes of God. But when we are created in the image of God, we have his attributes and we can choose to either grow in those attributes or to diminish those attributes. So those who reject God, who do not retain God in their knowledge, it's like all the attributes that are part of their of, of, of their image of their creation made in the image of God begin to to break down. So none of the things that we see in God becomes kind of their attributes anymore. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil, uh, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knows the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So it's like being completely desensitized to sin, being completely numb to sin, that all these things are manifested in us and we don't care, we approve them, we go after them, we preach them. We say this is actually the right way to live. And this is what the devil does, is he takes the things that God declared to be evil and he turns them not only to be okay, but to be virtues, right? To be virtues, like that is the sin that, that Eve committed. When God told her, you shall not eat of, the, uh, of this tree or else you will surely die. The devil, his temptation to her was not just, yes, you should eat of the tree. He said, no, eating of the tree, you will actually become like God. Eating of the tree is actually for your benefit. So just like what God calls unrighteousness, no, actually, this is for your benefit. What God is telling you is restricting you. He, you're not going to enjoy your life if you live a life where you're trying to be righteous. So this is actually damaging to you. And so you need to live differently live in what the Christians would call unrighteous, this is actually virtuous. Sexual immorality. There's no sexual immorality in the world. 
that, 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 according to their definition, there is no concept of sexual immorality. Everything goes. You have celebrities that are like married and going out with another celebrity at the same time and it's public and everybody knows and everyone's fine with it. Like, like it's not, the people aren't even trying to hide anymore. Like people have relationships with multiple people and groups and three and five and ten and whatever. Like this is, there is no concept of sexual immorality in the world. Whatever it is, which is the debased desire of any human being, it is good by definition simply because it's desired, right? Murder, hatred, nothing will, nothing is going to, like the devil's goal is to turn all of these into virtues. These are becoming the virtues of the world. Not just it's okay if you do them. No, this is the goal. The goal is to do these things. Because that is the complete flipping. That is the complete, like, turning on its head, right? From the kingdom of God to the kingdom of Satan. Kingdom of Satan, these are the virtues, and this is how he wants the world to live, and people are in his grasp when they, when they live this, right? Disobedient to parents. Even the idea now, it's like, you know what? You, you don't, you don't want to listen to your parents. Your, your parents don't know what's best for you. The school system knows what's best for you. The government knows what's best for you. Um, other people know what's best for you, but we won't even tell your parents, right? It's a virtue, right? It's a virtue. Glory be to God forever, amen. <laughs> yes. Um. I'm going to refer to St. Athanasius again, but it's because it seems like it seems like the very words that he uses, I, I recall them from On the Incarnation as well. Uh, but as you said, Abuna, it's the way he describes St. Athanasius describes sin. It's a, it's a movement from the the uh, possession of truth to well, it's 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 like the introduction of falsehood into the world. That's what uh, uh, the original sin was, and that that falsehood it it's like a cancer. It it manifests in the world, and all of these things the, these are like the examples of that. What functions that humans were created with distorted, reverted, and so we break down, as you said. We become like animals. We we lose our functionality. And Saint Athanasius says it's the movement from being to non-being to from existence to non-existence and it's for that purpose to save us from that from that faith from that, from that fate that Christ came for us from as you said the the prophecy in the in the book of Genesis from that moment on he 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 came to protect us from that fate perfect exactly yes any other comments okay let's pray In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. And we thank you, O God, because the scripture that you have given us has predicted thousands of years before in, to show us and to reveal to us the problems that we are experiencing today. And we thank you for s helping us to see how relevant it is even now and in every age. We ask, O God, that you do not allow us to go after the debased things, the wicked things, the darkness, 
We ask, O God, that you illuminate our minds and that you fill us with yourself and that you protect us, O Lord, from going down a path of temptation and destruction so that we lose our faculties and we lose our mind and we lose our will and we lose our sense of self and that being created in your image. We thank you, O Lord, because you are merciful and that you are the great healer and the great physician that is able to lift us up out of a state of darkness and restore us again and infuse us, O Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit and transform us and change us to be made again and to be created again from our state of uncreation. We thank you, O God, because you care for us and you are with us at all times and that you watch over us even when we run away from you and even when we do not want to retain the knowledge of you in our minds. We ask, O God, that you do not cease from pursuing us, but you have patience with us until we turn, until we return, until we come again, until we realize and acknowledge that we are led astray like the prodigal son, until we come back to you, O Lord, and we seek for forgiveness and we offer a pure repentance. We thank you, O God, because you have given us the church as a place of salvation, a place where we can come and learn about you and to receive, O Lord, your grace and to receive your power working in us to help us to overcome sin and evil in the world. We ask that you protect us and all your people and that you protect the children and those, O Lord, who are the most vulnerable, those who are deceived and those who are led astray, those who grow up in a world that is filled with all kinds of sin and that their faith is not supported by the things that they see around them. We thank you, O God, for your mercy, and we, we ask, O Lord, that you continue to strengthen us and you lead us on the everlasting life and in everything that we do be pleasing to you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit. <laughs>